I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. (laughs) 
Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv. Finally, I think, almost entirely, I think, recovered from COVID. Did I already say my name? I'm Liv. Maybe I'm not entirely recovered. I'm getting there. I'm just so excited to, to be back with, with a scripted episode that I got to write and that I actually enjoyed writing. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? better way to return to my script writing life than with my favorite guy from the ancient world. Everyone's favorite playwright, unless they are wrong, Euripides. Today we are returning to the sacrificed, past tense, daughter of that cursed-as-all-fuck family, Iphigenia, that granddaughter of none other than the man we just heard about a couple of months ago who cooked and ate his nephews and fed them to their own father. Good old Atreus. That family, it is endless. But I am getting ahead of myself. First, it is nearly that time of year again, the time when I ask you all to submit your questions and comments and whatever else that you want to share for the New Year Q&A episode better known as Liv gets a reason not to write 5,000 word scripts over the holidays. We all win with that one. So submit your questions or comments or requests for episodes, really anything that isn't, you know, weird and gross, uh, to the form at mythsdavy.com slash questions. I've linked to it in this episode's description. The Q&A will be open until December 27th and the episode will air on January 9th. I love these episodes. I think I just now officially do them twice a year, summer and winter. It's so fun to hear from all of you and you always have such great questions and they open up new ideas and and thought processes for me when it comes to the ancient world. I'm always happy to hear if you have episode suggestions too. And, you know, if you suggest a character or a story that, that doesn't have enough context for or content for a whole episode, which is very common, unfortunately, I'll just tell you what I know in the episode, in the Q&A episode instead. And with that housekeeping out of the way, let us return to Iphigenia. Quick trigger warning uh, for this episode because, well, this is the daughter of Agamemnon, after all. (laughs) What can you really expect from this family? So, you know, murder and human sacrifice, I guess. That's what. Not not yet in this episode, but we're not not talking about it. (laughs) This story isn't really about her family. It, It isn't really about the curse, though it plays a role. It is about her. Iphigenia. But her fate is so inextricably tied to her family, it is hard to separate it all. After all, we are returning to Iphigenia after she was sacrificed by her father, Agamemnon, so that his ships could have the wind to bring them to Troy. You know, her life is not divorced from the curse that sees Agamemnon murdered by his wife in the bath or his wife murdered by their son in revenge or their son being hounded by furies for his crimes. But of course, I've told all those stories before, including the episodes on Iphigenia at Aulis when she is sacrificed. If you want to refresh yourself, there is a Spotify playlist linked in the episode's description that features all of those episodes that lead up to this moment after the sacrifice because this play that we are about to dive into simultaneously takes place after Iphigenia at Aulis and Euripides Orestes and this one is different 
See, according to some versions of Iphigenia's story, you know, she's sacrificed by her father at Aulis when she believes she's being brought to marry Achilles instead. And she does indeed die there on that altar, stabbed through by her own father. But some versions have that as a, a ruse of sorts set out by the gods themselves. In those versions, at the very, very last minute, just a split second before the knife is about to plunge into Iphigenia on that altar, she is replaced by a deer. And what happens after that is not really based in a ton of existing myth, at least how Euripides is about to tell it. But that doesn't mean it isn't a story featuring human sacrifice. There's very little human sacrifice in Greek myth, but most of what does exist involves this damned to Tartarus family. This is episode 238. A case of ancient fanfiction, Euripides' Iphigenia among the Taurians. In some ways, this play is a sequel to Euripides' Iphigenia at Aulis, the play that features her sacrifice. And in some ways, it's a sequel to his Orestes, which tells the story of Iphigenia's brother, Orestes, getting revenge on their mother, Clytemnestra, for her murder of their father, Agamemnon. And in some ways, this play kind of stands on its own. It's odd in the best and most Euripidean way. The play starts after, as I said, the events of the play Orestes. Orestes has been pursued, terrorized by the runaways, the Furies, those goddesses, Tartarus bent on punishing people who commit crimes against their family members. And Orestes, you see, has been told now, after that play, that the only way for him to be finally completely rid of their curse is to steal a statue, a cult statue of Artemis, from the Taurians, these people in the east on the Black Sea. Only then, says Apollo's prophecy, will Orestes be free of the curse. What he doesn't know is that the sister that he has long thought dead, who he never really met because he was a baby when she died, sacrificed when he was just barely sentient, is very much in charge of the temple that now houses that statue. But first, let's talk just a little about these Taurians. Firstly, yes, it seems there was a very real people that we can call the Taurians. Like I said, they lived on the Black Sea in modern Crimea. They are connected with the Scythians, who are also in that area. Is there any reason, though, to believe anything that you're about to hear about the Taurians? No. <laughs> the Greeks saw the Taurians as, well, barbaric. And this case, not just because they weren't Greek. <laughs> Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, wrote of them. 
But I don't think that we need to believe him when it comes to actual history. But as a precursor to this play, (laughs) that's where Herodotus's downright troubling view of the Taurians can be very helpful. Plus, it's simply wild. So I'm just going to read this short passage on the Greek, the Hellenic view of these Taurian people, according to Herodotus. Quote, The Tauri have the following customs. They sacrifice to the maiden, both shipwrecked persons and also those Hellenes, Greeks, whom they can capture by putting out to sea against them. And their manner of sacrifice is this. When they have made the first offering from the victim, they strike his head with a club, and some say that they push the body down from the top of the cliff, for it is upon a cliff that the temple is placed, and set the head up on a stake. But others, while agreeing as to the heads, say nevertheless that the body is not pushed down from the top of the cliff, but buried in the earth. This divinity to whom they sacrifice, the Tori themselves say, is Iphigenia, the daughter of Agamemnon. Whatsoever enemies they have conquered, they treat in this fashion. Each man cuts off a head and bears it away to his house. Then he impales it on a long stake and sets it up above his house, raised to a great height, generally above the chimney. And they say that these are suspended above as guards to preserve the whole house." This people has its living by plunder and war. So you can see why I don't actually want you to believe Herodotus when it comes to these real people. I am fairly certain that was not likely a common practice. But Euripides was pretty inspired by these words nonetheless. Euripides starts his story at this temple of Artemis in this far east land of the Taurians. There's an altar before the temple entrance, and it is stained crimson with blood. Lots and lots of blood. Iphigenia steps down from the temple, and she reminds us of her family. She speaks to the audience of her father's side of the family first, but we know that cursed line well enough by now. I've just told you so much about them. Tantalus, and then Pelops, and then Atreus, and Thyestes, and then Agamemnon, and Menelaus, all bloodstained, just like the altar that she is standing before. Iphigenia, though, also speaks of her mother's side. She is the daughter of Clytemnestra herself, the daughter of Leda and Tyndareus, and sister to none other than that famed Helen. Iphigenia tells the audience, quote, My father killed me at Euripus, where stiff breezes spin the salt blue sea in spirals. For Helen's sake, a sacrifice to Artemis in famous Aulis. Or so people think. She wasn't killed, though, as we well know, not least because she is the one speaking. She tells us what actually happened, that at the last second, Artemis replaced her with a deer, which her father killed in her place. And instead, she says, quote, sent me clear through the air to the land of the Taurians, here. Iphigenia explains that she now lives among these non-Greeks barbarians, and that their king is Thoas. She says that the goddess Artemis installed her there at the temple as its priestess and, quote, There's a ritual, beautiful in name only, that Artemis finds pleasing. Well, I won't say more. She terrifies me. 
You know we're off to a good start when not even 50 lines into the play, we know that our main character, a priestess of Artemis, is terrified by that goddess and this so-called ritual. And what is it? Well, she says, quote, I sacrifice any Greek man who comes here. That is, I start things off. Others do the killing inside the temple. We don't talk about this. One thing I often talk about when it comes to Greek plays and their performance is what the audience would already know about the story being played out before them. Usually they know it all, or they know the story if not all the details that the playwright is going to include. In Medea, they know of Jason and they know of his deception, his crimes with Glauca. They they know of Medea's witchy nature. They know she is going to be angry. What they might not have known was that she was going to kill her children. In the stories of this cursed family, they, they know it all, though perhaps not the little ways in which Euripides would detail Orestes' killing of Clytemnestra or what happened to him after. But here, though, they probably wouldn't know much at all. This is not a myth like the others. Like, Iphigenia is a myth, certainly, and even this version where she is not actually killed at Atlas, that is a very common story. But in those myths, Iphigenia is saved by Artemis at this last minute, and then she is made immortal. Euripides, though, wants her brought to this land of barbarians and human sacrifice that the audience probably would not have seen coming. This play is often described as being similar to Euripides' Helen, and with good reason, in both cases he took this well-known and broadly understood myth and he said, fuck it, let's make it weird. Iphigenia begins to speak to the audience of a dream that she had the night before. She's escaped the Taurians in this dream and she was back in her home in Argos. In the dream she slept in a full a room full of other girls, but woke to the palace falling down around her. She ran outside to watch as the roof crumbled in on itself. Quote, One pillar remains of our ancestral home. I saw it grow blonde hair and speak a human voice. She goes on to explain that in this dream, she went on to perform her usual sacrificial rites on this lone pillar. This, Iphigenia says, she interpreted to mean that her brother back in Argos is dead. Quote, It was him I sprinkled with water. Boys are the pillars of the house, are they not? And anyone I consecrate does die. Iphigenia, now that she believes her brother is dead, wants to do whatever she can for him, even from as far away as she is. She's gonna pour libations to him, but she needs to wait for her attendants before she can. She notes that for some reason... They aren't there yet. They're Greeks, she tells the audience. Women given to her by this king of the Taurians. They, of course, will be the chorus when they do arrive. But not yet. For now, Iphigenia returns to the temple where she lives, and the stage is left empty until Orestes arrives. Very much not dead and not alone either. He is with his dear friend, Pylades. The two might as well have walked straight there from the events of Euripides' Orestes. Is this it? Orestes asks his friend. 
quote, Does this look to you like the goddess's temple, the one we sailed here from Argos to find? It does, Pilates agrees. Orestes sees the altar now before the temple, quote, wet with Greek blood. They look around, taking in this temple and the altar itself. It's not just this blood-stained altar that gives them an idea of what happens there, but spoils as well. There are things hanging around, evidence of the Greek men that have been sacrificed there in the past. And with the horrible details noticed and pointed out to the audience, Orestes begins a speech explaining why exactly he and Pilates are there, searching for this goddess's temple. Orestes calls out to Apollo, asking the god what kind of trap that he has been led into. He reminds Apollo and the audience that it was that oracle who first told Orestes that he should avenge his father's death by murdering his own mother. And that, of course, caused him to be haunted by the Furies, and so finally he had sought out the god again, now for advice on how to end his suffering by the Furies, which is how he's ended up there. Quote, You told me to go to the Taurian land where your sister Artemis has her altars and steal a statue of the goddess that, people say, fell from the sky to this temple here. He goes on to explain that he is meant to take it through cunning and to bring it to Athens. Those are the only instructions that he's been given, and it seems the only way to free himself from this endless suffering that is the Furies. He turns to Pilates. How are we going to do this? Do we climb up on a ladder and come down from above? We will be spotted, though, surely. And we don't have any means of forcing our way in. No, Orestes says. Quote, let's just run for it before we get killed. We can use the same boat that we came in on. This land is uh, intimidating. Orestes, the man who has murdered his own mother and is now well experienced in dealing with goddesses of vengeance. Even he is too afraid of the Taurians to even try. In a blink, he wants to give up and run. Just damn the consequences. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't 
feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Orestes is ready to run, to flee the land of the Taurians and give up his quest assigned by Apollo. It seems he'd rather live being terrorized by the Furies than even attempt to rob these particular people. But Pilates is not having it. Running isn't an option, he tells Orestes. That's not who we are. We don't run. Quote, and the oracle of God must be respected. Instead, Pilates suggests they leave the temple for now and go hide in some caves that they encountered when they first landed on the shores. They'll keep away from their ship in case it's spotted, and they'll just wait for darkness. And then they can steal the statue, unseen. Quote, Good men find the nerve for ordeals. Cowards are nothing. Orestes agrees with his friend. He doesn't actually want to leave doesn't want to leave Apollo's oracle unfulfilled, nor does he want to be seen as avoiding something just because it's hard. <laughs> and with that, they leave 
headed for this cave, like Pilates suggested. And once they're gone from the stage, the chorus finally arrives. Chorus of Greek women, enslaved Greek women, who live and work alongside Iphigenia, and, of course, they're singing. They're singing of the region in which they find themselves, near the famed clashing rocks of the Argo's famous journey to Colchis. They sing of Artemis, their goddess. They sing of the loss of their country, how they miss the walls and towers and forests and groves of Greece. And then they direct their song to Iphigenia, who's called them to the temple. Quote, Why have you brought me here, brought me to the temple, O child of the man who came against the towers of Troy? And with that, Iphigenia returns to the stage from the temple. She sings with them, mirroring their tune and joining in with them in her reply. She tells them, quote, I'm oppressed by the pain of lament, by lyreless, unmusical music, by keening. She tells them of her brother, of the dream she had of him, and how she's interpreted it in the only way that makes sense. Her brother, Orestes, is dead, and she must mourn him in whatever small way that she can, just so far from home and from what remains of her family. Though Iphigenia has no idea how little does remain of her family, except the way she speaks of this premonition hints that there is more than just Orestes's death that's happened back home in Argos. Quote, I am lost. Our house is no more. Our family gone. What sorrows swept Argos? Then again, she speaks directly of Orestes, of losing her only brother. She tells the women that she wants to pour libations, the milk of cows and the wine of Dionysus and the honey of bees, mixed together and poured in honor of the dead. Quote, they comfort the dead. And so Iphigenia performs these rites for her brother, calling out to him, explaining that what she is pouring is for him. Quote, I'll not be bringing bright locks of hair to crown your tomb. I'll not be bringing tears. I am far away from our homeland, yours and mine, and the people there think I am butchered and dead. In reply to Iphigenia's news of her brother, the fate of Argos, and her pouring libations to the sibling that she believes to be dead, the chorus of Greek women sing of everything. They sing of their situation, of where they are, the foreign world that they are inhabiting. They sing of the house of Atreus, that cursed, cursed house. Quote, Gone is its light, its scepter, gone is the pomp of all those brilliant kings. Trouble rushes on trouble. They sing of this line of kings, of the sun turning its back on that cursed house. Quote, then sorrow upon sorrow came to the house of the golden lamb, killing on killing, grief on grief, from all that ancient, tantalid, wrong punishment unfolds now, and the god is zealous against you. Iphigenia sings of her own bad luck, and gods she has been born with bad luck! 
She sings of her mother, Clytemnestra, the firstborn daughter of Leda, inextricably tied to that other daughter, Helen, and all that came along with that woman and her fate. Iphigenia is just as tied to her mother's fate, and her own was decided before she was even born. She says that she was born for slaughter, as she sees it conceived and birthed with the intention of being slaughtered by her father, sacrificed for all of Greece. Literally. She sings of her fate and how she was told she was to be Achilles' bride. What a joke. She was no bride of Achilles. She was meant for death. But she didn't die. The witch is worse. Quote, Now I live as a stranger in a barren house by the hostile sea. I've no marriage, no children, no loved ones. She sings of being abandoned. By Greece, how she no longer sings songs for Hera or Athena or the Titans. She no longer weaves at her loom. What she's saying here very specifically is that she is not living the life of a Greek woman. A Greek woman would be married with children, with people to love and who love her. She would sit at her loom, happily weaving something in honor of the gods. But now, Iphigenia doesn't get to do any of that. Quote, no, I work in blood making death for strangers who cry out for pity, who shed tears for pity. When she should be enjoying a normal, content life as a Greek woman, instead she helps sacrifice Greek men, helps these foreigners kill them. But she can't mourn them right now. She's mourning her brother, who represents home. Orestes represents Argos and her family. He represents the life that she should have had. He's so much more than just her brother and the heir of Argos. When Iphigenia left Argos, she was a young teenager and Orestes was only a baby. He was a reminder of how long she's been gone, how long her family has believed her to be dead and at the hands of her father. And now, He's dead. Orestes is dead. He represents so much more than a sibling. She also, in some way, does seem to understand what else has happened in Argos. She and the chorus, they don't speak of the death of Agamemnon or Clytemnestra, but they speak of Argos's fall. Far more than just the generations before and Orestes himself. They don't reference the details. They, they know in some way, though, just as the audience would be fully and completely aware of what has happened in Argos in Iphigenia's absence. How her father returned from war, war that required Iphigenia's sacrifice only to be killed by her mother in an attempt to avenge that sacrifice. And then their mother killed by her brother in an attempt to avenge that murder. And now Orestes might not actually be dead, but to Iphigenia, a dream of his death represents the fall of everything that she knew from home. The knowledge that even if she were able to go home, there's nothing left there. Nothing but more death, blood, destruction, heartbreak. Her dream was certainly prophetic. That crumbling palace that she saw... It's just that it was others' death that it represented. Deaths that weren't her brother. Or something to come. And it's this moment when a herdsman arrives on the stage. He speaks to Iphigenia, tells her that he has had a strange 
report. Two men have arrived on their shores. Quote, What a welcome contribution to our goddess. Get your holy water ready and your consecrations, he tells Iphigenia. He's asking her to prepare, to prepare them for sacrifice. Where are they from? She asks him. Who are they? But he doesn't know. It doesn't really matter. What he knows is that they're Greek, which means that she's going to have to facilitate their sacrifice on that bloody, gory altar that they're all standing before. Gods, Euripides does write a good, dramatic reveal. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. I'm really excited to be starting this play. I I absolutely love covering plays. They are just so interesting. And to turn it into storytelling for this show, like, it's it's so much fun. Um, so I'm perpetually thrilled how often you all tell me that you love them. Of course, getting into this, there's just a lot of kind of, a lot of stuff being thrown at, but there is going to be some drama, reveals and secrets and maybe some human sacrifice. Now, for Iphigenia Among the Taurians, I have been primarily using Anne Carson's translation. That's where all the quotes have come from. But there is another translation that I have referred to a little bit as well, and it is online for free if you are interested in reading yourself. It is by George Theodoridis on poetryandtranslation.com, and I have linked to it in the episode's description, along with that Spotify playlist of this cursed family's many episodes, if you're interested in either of those. As usual, I'm going to read a five-star review from one of you lovely listeners. Thank you all so much for your reviews. They make my day. This one comes from Ava in the Netherlands. My favorite podcast of all time. Hi, I'm Ava. If you're new to this podcast, I would recommend this as the best podcast I've ever listened to. I started listening to this podcast about a year ago, and it has inspired me to classics, Greek and Latin. Liv is very funny and has made me see the characters in Greek myth in ways other people could not. If you're not listening to this already, you're definitely missing out. Thank you, Liv, for making this podcast. You've changed my life. Thank you, Ava. That's so sweet. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, better known as the assistant producer. Laura Smith is now the production assistant and audio engineer. Select music used in this episode, finally, after that little taste in Seneca's Thyestes, is by Luke Chaos. The podcast is part of the iHeart Podcast Network. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. So many uses of the word podcast. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you will get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv and I love this shit. Ugh, thank you, nerds. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. In my best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits.
every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.